John 7, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. I realize this is a long section. It's a lot of verses. Let's stick with it. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going to this feast, because for me, the right time has not yet come. And having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. And now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. And whenever John says the Jews, he's talking about the religious leaders of the Jews. Not not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, my teaching, it's not my own, it comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. And then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? That is our scripture reading this morning. The counterintuitive character of Christ, boys and girls, something that is counterintuitive is something that is against what common sense or intuition would tell you. And there are a bunch of things like that in life. One, one thing that's, that's actually counterintuitive is that the earth is round. Intuition would tell us, and it told people for thousands of years, that the earth is round. But it's really, it's just so big that when you look on the horizon, it's, it looks flat, right? It's also counterintuitive, to me at least, that water vapor is lighter than air. Water, you'd think it'd be heavier. But water vapor is lighter than air, which is why clouds are floating above us and not beneath us. Sticking with scientific facts, something else that's counterintuitive is that white light is composed of all the colors of the rainbow. There is a lot about the Christian faith that is counterintuitive in the sense that there's a lot about our faith that goes against typical or natural ways of thinking. A really well-known passage that gives us some of these things is Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. It says there, Blessed are those who mourn. Who in their right mind would say, Blessed are those who mourn? It says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and so on. As someone I know puts this idea, there is human logic and then there is theologic from theology, God's logic versus human logic. And in our text, we see some of that theologic, that God logic, the biblical logic, faith logic, in the counterintuitive character of Jesus. We see how Christ turns things on their head. And because Christ's character is at times counterintuitive, It means that your faith and mine, what we believe, how we're called to live, is counterintuitive too. And what I want to simply do this morning is look at several areas of our calling as Christians based on the character of Christ as we follow him in this text. First of all, we find that we are called to wait on God's timing. Our tendency is to seize the moment when our gut tells us to. But that's not always right. God's timing is always right. Even if everything inside of us is screaming, go, or asking, why? We must wait on him. In our text, the brother's timing was off. Jesus says in verse 6, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. We read that Jesus' brothers had come to him. Did you know Jesus had siblings? These would really be half-brothers, children Mary and Joseph had after Jesus. 
Mark 6.3 names four of them that we know of for sure. James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. This could have been them. It could have, maybe there were others. James would become really well-known later. He'd be an early church leader. He's the guy who wrote the book of James. It's a brother of Jesus. The gist of what these brothers are after seems to be they wanted their brother, Jesus, to seek fame, to make himself more known, to take these miracles, to take the show, bring him to Judea. Galilee is up here in the north. Judea is in the south, more populated, where the capital was, Jerusalem. Up until now, up until through chapter 6 in John, Jesus had mostly been in Galilee, where it was quieter in the north. Show yourself to the world, says verse 4. Do your miracles where more people will see them. And Jesus says in verse 6, he says in verse 8, no, no, the right time has not yet come. Jesus was waiting on God's time. He had a mission. He had a plan that would eventually take him south to Jerusalem, but it wasn't yet. And then we read that he would end up going, after all, verse 10, a reason he might have is that all males, all Jewish males, were supposed to go annually to Jerusalem on three of the main seven feasts. Three of those feasts required all the males to go. And the Feast of Tabernacles was one of those. So he goes probably to fulfill the law, but he went in secret. The time to go public would be on Palm Sunday, entering Jerusalem with all the crowds, but it was not yet. Jesus perfectly waited on God's timing, and he always did that, and he always resisted man's timing as he resists his own brother's timing here. Followers of Jesus today, you and me also, are called to wait on God's timing. We're called to resist the urge to take things into our own hands whether it's a venture in the church, whether it's a business venture you got going on or, or cooking up, a family decision, we're called to use God's logic, not man's. T.D. Jakes, you'll hear him preach on Moody sometimes. He talks about God's timing in this way, and I'm just going to quote him. If you're going to be successful in dance, you must be able to respond to rhythm and timing. And I'm quoting him because, trust me, this is nothing I know anything about, dance. As you know, when the dancing starts at wedding receptions, that's my cue to leave. I'm not being rude. I just don't dance. Jakes goes on, talks about responding to rhythm and timing in dance. It's the same in the Holy Spirit. People who don't understand God's timing can become spiritually spastic, trying to make the right things happen at the wrong time. They don't get his rhythm. And everyone can tell they're out of step. And he says that's why he wholeheartedly agrees with Samuel Rutherford, who says this, I will charge my soul to believe and wait for him and to follow his providence, not go before it, nor stay behind it. Now, no matter where we are in our lives, I bet each one of you is waiting right now for the right time for something. There's always something that we're waiting for. 
whose timing would... Sometimes the waiting seems to last forever. Sometimes it goes real quick. Question is, how do you handle the wait? The Bible says, wait on the Lord. You read through the Psalms, you'll find it all over the place. Wait on the Lord. Three simple actions that I came across that I think will help you wait on the Lord's timing. One, trust. And again, I would be very surprised if there's anyone here who's not waiting on something. It's always trust. Scripture teaches us that God is unchangeable. That means that you can always rely on God. You can rely on him to provide the best possible path for your life. God promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. If he seems silent to you now, it's because he has another plan, he's got a different timing than yours, or he's got a way to answer your prayer that has not even been revealed to you yet. So if you're in a position of waiting, first of all, trust. Trust in the unchanged one. Trust in his plan. Second, resist. Resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands. Patience is a powerful thing. Having patience is essential to so much in life. And the Holy Spirit is here to fill us with patience when we feel that we can't wait another minute on God. Third, pray. God always answers our prayers, but it may not be in the way we want him to or expect him to. It may be a yes, it may be a no, it may be something better. When we don't immediately get the answer we want, our tendency is to keep saying the same prayer over and over again until you like lose your voice or you totally give up from exhaustion. Instead, after you give your need to the Lord, turn your request into a thank you. Thank him. Have an attitude of expectancy and say, not my will, Lord, but yours. When we thank the Lord in advance for answering our prayers, it's an active display of our faith. It demonstrates to God our confident expectation that his awesome power will provide for us. Let me give you a, a recent example of waiting on God's timing in my life. I thought that surely it was God's timing to bring a second pastor to faith when we called Derek. The overwhelming support of the congregation and many other things. I thought, surely God can't expect me to continue into a second year of pastoring this large church alone. I thought, surely God knows that my family and I are feeling worn out I'm not complaining. I'm not looking for pity. I'm being real. I'm trying to be real to you this morning, friends. But you know how that went, don't you? It was not God's timing to bring us a second pastor yet. And I don't know when it's going to be. 
when stuff we're hopeful will happen in our lives doesn't happen. People throw out there, I'm sure God has something better in mind. And you know what? My experience tells me that that is indeed true. You might think that's just a saying. They're just saying something to give you comfort. My experience tells me that is truth. I believe that God has just the right person in mind. In the meantime, I'm called to trust in his plan, resist taking matters into my own hand, and pray, keeping up a vital relationship with the Lord so that I can listen and hear his answer and expectantly know he will. And I believe you are called to do the same in whatever timing situation you are facing, whether it's waiting for an improved job situation, whether you're waiting for a spouse, whether you're waiting on a, on a wayward child or grandchild. It may be counterintuitive to wait, to not like jump in there right away with our ideas. It may be hard sometimes, but we're called to wait on God's timing. A second counterintuitive thing about Christ which impacts our faith is that we seek God's glory, not ours. The world presses us to put ourselves first so we get ours. The world exalts self. The brothers wanted Jesus to get the glory and the fame, and that's why they wanted him to go to Judea. And you can bet they were thinking, we're close to him, we're his brothers, we'll be right there getting the glory and the fame too. Verse 18 says, though, he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. Jesus sought the honor of his heavenly Father always. There's a, a recent, really popular Christian song out there called Steal My Show. And it really gets at this idea in a great way, I think. Human logic, human tendency, is to think that our lives are a platform for us. Human logic says, this is my show. God's logic says, life is God's show. Your life is God's show. Your life is for his glory. There's a book that came out 11 years ago, and it was very, very popular, and it starts with this line. This is the first paragraph, roughly. It says, it's not about you. And then it goes on. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. And he says, the search for meaning has puzzled and stumped many people, and it's because we typically begin with the wrong starting point, ourselves. The title of the first chapter of this book gives the clue, it all starts with God. The book was the purpose-driven life, and it brought to a broader evangelical audience, something I believe people in Reformed churches have always known, and that is that God is to be first. The glory of God is number one. 
And so we ask when we have decisions to make, not what will be in this for me, what will help me look best, but instead, how will this please God? What will most lift up his name? We say, how can I make bless the Lord, O my soul, not just a song I sing, but a part of everyday life, every hour, every moment glorifying him? Human logic and the world will tell uh, this, this little boy who's, who's out right now, Peter Scott III, human logic will tell him the secret to a successful life is to make sure your name gets out there. They'll say, do everything you can to make sure the spotlight is on you. Scott and Liz and all of us who raise kids and all of us together who disciple kids in our children's ministries, we're called to instill a sense from a child's youngest years that we live for the honor of him who sent Jesus. It's all for the glory of God. This creation, this church, your life, your work, your spare time, your weekdays, your weekends, it's all his show. It's all to reflect his greatness and beauty and splendor and truth and love. There's one more counterintuitive truth displayed in the character of Christ in our verses. And that is that we can rest in salvation, which is by God's grace and not in man's legalism. In verses 21 through 24, talks about, I did one miracle. And you might have wondered, what is that referring to? It's referring to back in chapter 5, which we did, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And it really made the religious authorities upset because Jesus did the healing on the Sabbath. Why is that such a problem? So much a problem that they wanted to kill Jesus because of that. Not, it wasn't just about the healings. It was that he did it on the Sabbath. It's because they, it went against their nice, tight system for who was a child of God and who was not. Who was in the church and who was not. And for them, following laws made someone saved or not. And that's called legalism. Stop judging by appearances, says Jesus, because that's what they were doing. If you did this and that just so you were good, and that's how we think life should be. It makes sense. If you just figure out a formula, everything will turn out well. You'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be happy. We have a whole culture of formulas for eating well, for your love life, for getting rich. We saw in chapter 5 this disabled person who lived under this religious system with its set formula for 38 years, and it got him nowhere. What saves him? Figuring out another system? Tweaking the formula? Doing something? He did nothing. What saves him is Jesus stepping into the situation, picking him out among all those people, healing him, even though he wasn't even looking for Jesus, through nothing he had done. That is God's grace, my friends. And you can be liberated, too, from the pressures of doing things just so and thinking that will make God look on you in a certain way. Whether it's being a perfect mom, a perfect husband, 
a perfect church member. God loves you and he saves you anyway, despite your imperfections. That's grace. And out of that grace comes a life of service, not the other way around. An example of God's grace is seen in these brothers. Verse 5, even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. John's original readers would have been surprised at that because they were living at the end of the first century. And they would have only known these guys later on after they had started doing great things, after they had come to faith. So that would have been a real surprise that they didn't believe at one point. And that should be encouraging to you and me too. What it tells me is that even those closest to Jesus aren't always where they should be in their life. Even those, even his brothers, even you and I, many of us who've grown up in the church, even those closest to Jesus aren't always where they should be in their life. We can doubt him. Our living isn't always where it should be. But by grace, God draws us to himself. God doesn't let you be. He'll find you. He'll call you home. He has his eye on you, and he plucks you out. And we can move forward from wherever we are now to lives of great faith, all not because we've done everything just so and just right, but by God's grace alone. This is counterintuitive because human logic says to get ahead, to be at peace, to get life right, you've got to put in the work. You've got to put in the formula. God's logic says to achieve eternal life, you rest in the work of another. You've got to do nothing. You believe in Jesus. In conclusion, we see the most counterintuitive thing of all of these, and that's Jesus' destination, and that's verses 25 and following especially. Verse 33, Jesus talks about going somewhere. They didn't know it. We know from our perspective that God's destination and purpose for him was the cross. Jesus was doing these miracles, and the brothers thought this was Jesus' chance to rise to power. They'd ride his coattails. But God's purpose for Christ was very different. It was suffering and humiliation and death on a cross. Atonement needed to happen. Atonement needed to be made for sin, and that's how it would happen. The cross is not our destination. It was the unique job of Jesus to make atonement for our sin. Christ and Christ alone. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. But there is a sense, I believe, in which the cross must be our destination. We're called to go to the cross to be saved. We're invited to believe in him, the one who would die for our sins. Why? It's because counterintuitively, eternal life comes through death, Christ's death. And because he was raised to life three days later, all who belong to him have life too. Have you made the trip to the cross of Christ 
friends? Do you humbly each day again make the crucified and risen Jesus your destination? Resting in Him and His finished work, you will be empowered to live in God's perfect timing and not forever and ever living out of step and out of time. You'll seek God's glory and not get lost, all lost in yourself or lost in anyone else. You'll experience resting in Him, His precious grace that will give you a peace that passes understanding. And you will have a grace-filled life to give to others. Theologic, biblical logic, that is the secret to a successful life for this baby we baptized, and it's the secret to a successful life for you too. May we know God's logic more and more by knowing Christ and his word more and more.